Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone who's interested in how stories are made. Basically, I'm trying to do three things with the show. Make you write more, make you write better and make you write happier. I mean, not make you, encourage you to. I'd like to think that there was some form of uh, consent or personal choice in there, but nonetheless, those are three things that I'm aiming to uh, assist you with to scurry you along with scurry you along isn't really a phrase is it um hi today's episode is me chatting to the uh writer will store he's somebody i've known of as you'll hear in the uh interview for 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 years and um we talk about all his books he's sort of mainly a non-fiction writer although he has written a novel um but he has sort of written non-fiction kind of journalism and uh, we go through some of his earlier books. But the one I think the book that he's most recently come out with is one that I've seen loads of writers reading and raving about, you know, quoting bits from saying they're finding it fan- fantastic or fascinating or it's blowing their mind is this new book uh, called The Science of Storytelling. And that is all about him looking into some of the psychological principles or some of the science behind why we tell stories and it's very accessible uh he does it with with quite a lightness of touch and it developed out of a out of a creative writing workshop he was doing so it's written with a focus on what's useful for writers you know he takes those principles and then he tries to say well what can we learn from this how can you apply this to your own writing so, you know, as kind of fascinating and pop psyche as it is, there is, he's always looking for pivots into actual practical points that you can apply to your writing. So, of course, I wanted to speak to him. Frankly, I was a little bit gutted that his book was coming out because obviously it's just something that I've been sort of working into in the show for a long for you know at least a year you know speaking to psychologists speaking to neuroscientists and feeling like I was doing something that not many other people were doing well you know fair play he (laughs) he's written it up and uh, I think the thing that was a bit of a salve on my uh, on my wound when I was like oh god I wish I wish I'd written that was the fact that I've read Will's work before and it's always been really good. So I was just like, well, at least he's not like salting the earth for a generation. At least he's not writing on this subject and doing it such a notoriously bad job that he completely discredits the field. And at least I know actually I can just read it and kind of glean a bunch of new information. And there's loads of stuff in there I didn't know or hadn't thought of. So... You know, even though it's an area that I've been really, really obsessed with for a year, even then there was really, really interesting takes in there. Some very well-observed connections he's made between different psychological principles and the art of storytelling. And I just think you don't have to agree with everything he's written in there, but I think it's a fantastic provocation. I think it's a great way of getting you thinking about the business of storytelling and I think we sort of talk about novels and we talk about stories and we're so kind of immersed in them that it's actually rare we sort of step back and go what are we doing here what is this psychological and social phenomenon that is storytelling because 
you know, we don't question it like a fish doesn't question the sea. I mean, of course, a fish doesn't have the sort of self-reflexive capacity to build up complicated, abstract uh, models of, of, of what the sea is. But um, aside from that, you know, stories surround us. And so we take them for granted a lot of the time. And I think that is what Will's book does really well. And I'll put a link in the show notes because I know a lot of you are just going to want to go, OK, I want I need to read this after you've heard him talking about it. Um, but I think it's a really good way. I think like all good, actually, a lot of good fiction and a lot of good poetry does is like defamiliarising the familiar, taking something that we feel like we know and just giving it a half twist so we see it properly for the first time or we see it new again and uh, i think that's just a real talent and it's a it's a great contribution to you know literature around writing in a world where there are lots of creative writing manuals that are just like how to be how to sell a million books how to write well uh it's really nice to see somebody actually trying to get in there and talk about something that hasn't been talked about very much before and so yeah I, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, I think you're going to really enjoy checking it out um, we also talk about his other books that led up to it which are really fascinating um, so we cover everything from ghosts to Nazis to narcissism and all points in between and actually it's really interesting drawing a kind of line between those books how they sort the subjects are linked and how they sort of seem to inevitably flow into each other in that the science of storytelling is sort of kind of a capstone upon a bunch of subjects he's done before about people who believe very different things to most people people who believe uh, damaging horrible lies people who believe things that just don't seem true um and and how that can happen you know in a story you know that storytelling is part of that so i think you're gonna find it really really fascinating he's a great talker and i'm really grateful to him for having sort of given up the time to chat before we get started just to say that this show is not sponsored so there's a couple of things you can do if you'd like to support the show uh or even if you don't and you're just feeling perverse and you want to punish yourself you could go onto my coffee page that's ko-fi.com com forward slash tim claire and drop me a few bucks which just helps me cover my costs like hosting for the website and for the soundcloud and look it would be great if you wanted to dive in and buy one of my books uh, the honors or the ice house they're two books in a fantasy series i think you really like them the ice house has not been selling very well that's the honest truth i think it sold like about 350 copies last check i heard um last time i heard which you know, people people have been taking the piss out of Jacob Rees-Mogg's Victorians for only uh, selling 760 copies and how it's a big flop. Well, I've sold less than half that Jacob Rees-Mogg has. And I'll probably record a little episode about how I'm feeling about the whole business at the moment. Uh, I don't... I suppose the danger of talking about it is always that it sounds like I'm asking you for something by bringing it up or you know just like weirding people out i think i'm talking about it because people have said that it's helpful to hear a writer reflect honestly upon the experience of being a writer so that's kind of what i'm doing uh and i and it's difficult because the mode that we try to project 
a lot of the time is just success, success, success. Everybody's looking to my book. I'm so glad. Thank you. I mean, like the reviews have been good. Like that's not hyperbole. The reviews have been really great. I know people who are reading it are really enjoying it. Um, and that's not just confirmation bias on my part. I know it's just frustrating that a lot of places who apparently were going to review it then just didn't bother. And we haven't had very much retailer support, which is, you know, like shops displaying it prominently, doing offers with it, that kind of thing. So, and people just haven't picked it up. And I don't really know what to do with that in my head yet. Uh, it's not good news. Remains to be seen what it actually does to my writing career. A lot of writing is sort of out of your control and... Um, I'll reflect on it in another episode. I think it's worth my thinking about it and maybe talking about it a bit with you. I won't take up this episode with that now. Uh, but nonetheless, if you haven't bought yourself a copy of my book, um, I'd really appreciate it. If you did, I think you're going to really like them. Um, I mean, The Honours has done great. Like, I'm not, not worried about that one, but um, The Ice House, the follow-up, uh, is struggling a little bit. Uh, so it'd be great if you want to buy copies or talk about it or do whatever you can it would be fantastic to outsell arch brexiteer jacob rees mogg that would certainly make me feel a bit happier about myself but i'm not going to make that the basis upon which i feel happy about myself i'm a human being and i'm worthy of love and you know what like i might have a go at writing books and it'd be a big flop doesn't matter i'm still a super great guy worthy of love Lots of people like me. I'm pretty kind. I do a pretty good podcast as well, folks. So um, that is not, I'm not going to, as tempting as it is to say my self-worth rests on this. So either buy my book or watch me crumble. No, I'm not, that's not going to be the terms upon which we do this. I just think you'll probably like it. Right. That is an extremely weird advert over. Um, I hope that you enjoy today my chat with author of The Science of Storytelling, Will store where i'd like to start is can i what is the first story that you can remember telling 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 or or, or like the first story that you remember someone telling you or something that affected you early on like what's like a a defining like early story for you um well it's a kind of answer to that question that i mean so uh, i'll answer so so really it's um re, it's having leo the there was a book called leo the late bloomer there was a kid's book you know and that, that's the first book i remember actually thinking oh because i because i think it was read in the context of this is a bit like you isn't it you're a bit like this late bloomer and, and sort of identifying it with this leo the late bloomer but 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 really the first um the first kind of proper book that had a big effect on me um and i'm actually adding this in for the to the pa- i'm still working on the paperback edition of science stories at the moment i'm going to add a little bit about this in um was julian barnes's the history of the world in ten and a half chapters and I, I and I read that book when I was, um, you know, in mid mid adolescence, early mid adolescence, and I was going through the kind of turmoils of my first love affair and going through all the kind of misery and panic and passion and all that business that you go through when you're 
15, 16 years old and, and was just in a state of kind of emotional chaos, really. And um, I remember reading it, the half chapter in that book, if you've not read it, is just called Parenthesis. And it's this um, little essay about love that kind of ties all the other 10 short stories together and kind of makes sense of them all. And I remember it said um, the, 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 the problem with love is um, that – and, and he repeats the line a few times – the heart isn't heart-shaped. We imagine the heart as being this perfect – organ these two halves that are, 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 are kind of slot together to make this whole and then in that half chapter he describes um going to a butcher and buying an ox heart and slabbing this messy disturbing fucked up piece of gristle down on this slab and trying to sort of deconstruct it and just saying you, you know and using that as his way of saying that, 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 that we expect too much from love uh, and that the problem with love is is that we um we, we we expect it to make us happy but love isn't this force like electricity that you can unleash that cr- that creates happiness and that was that, that that just really struck to the core of me and it, and um it really made me understand that relationship um, in a much more healthy way, and it, but it's also made me understand um, all my other love relationships in a much more healthy way ever since. You know, it's really one of those, especially when you get to that age, you get these core understandings about the world that often come from story that really reframe and explain a lot of the confusion that you go through. So that, that that's the first story that really affected me and changed the way I saw the world. I want to ask you about your your the first book of yours that I I, I read, um, Will Store versus the Supernatural, because oh my god, Tim, that's are you really going back there? That's good. I'm impressed. Well, but the the thing about that book <laughs> that like, aside from the fact that I've been like a lifelong reader of Take a Break, Fate and Fortune, and Chat It's Fate, so like I was on board immediately. <laughs> what was and you know, I've even got the Psychic Adventures of Derek Akora up on my shelf. You know, like I, I my my Derek Akora deep lore is on point. But that wow. book has got the most like batshit, insane, crazy premise. Like when it the opening bid of that book is one that when I describe it to people, they all go, they all go shit what and i'm like yeah yeah this is what this is the could could you just because i can't say that and then i go so we won't discuss this now could you just tee up yeah. for people because this is you this is like the this is like a non-fiction book and i i just think it, it was just like it's one of those books that when i describe to people what the premise is they go oh my god i've got to read that uh, yeah yeah so 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 that was it my, was my first book and um i wrote that in my, when i was in my 20s um and it, it came out of a magazine article that um that i that, that i wanted to write and, and the magazine article was this there was this guy in america and his name was lou gentilly and by day he was a central heating engineer and by night he was the demonologist and he would go around looking helping people essentially who had um uh, problems with ghosts and the, and the idea was that in this kind of super rational day and age, even the Catholic Church are reluctant to agree to give exorcisms because it's, it's seen as a bit sort of regressive and a bit silly. Um, so, so they usually say no. And so what Lou does is he goes around 
gathering evidence on behalf of the haunted to, 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 to help them with their exorcism. So I just thought this sounded absolutely hilarious. <laughs> That's the funniest thing ever. And so the, the idea was, obviously, being British, I'm going to go along, hang out with him for a week or so and just take the piss out of him. But the tables were almost immediately turned <laughs> because when I, when I turned up there, um, everything that Lou Gentili told me was going to happen actually happened. Uh, so um, and I, I'll never forget going home. It wasn't that night. It was that morning. It's been up all night and, and, I, and I was trying to sleep. But I, I, even though it was day, I had to have the lights on and I, like it, I was absolutely terrified. So, so, so it was that that was how the book begins, really. It's, it, it's, it's going on this on this kind of slightly stock sub uh, Lou, uh, Louis Theroux style magazine feature, but ended up having my backside kicked by, by this guy, essentially. Because that was something that when I was reading the science of storytelling, like one of the things that's interesting to me is, and this might be like a, a, a slightly oversimplified or even obvious point, but like it seems like through all of your non-fiction that you've been really really fascinated right from the beginning in the kind of stories we tell ourselves and the way they help us to make sense of what can be quite a confusing and upsetting world even when those stories when you examine them you know kind of fall apart quite quickly how attractive they are because you know when you started like exploring the the supernatural even though you'd had that like opening experience of like oh oh you know quite humbling of being like oh shit um you know you don't then discover that everybody's telling the truth right no exactly yeah yeah i mean so so one of the one of the main characters in 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 the ghost book is this guy morris gross is now well like lou gentilly no longer with us um, and and Morris um, was is famous in the ghost community because he was one of the principal investigators of the Enfield Poltergeist, which is this. Most people have heard of it these days. It was dramatised on television a few years ago on Sky. Um, this whole thing, and, and he, he and he, he in the book we talk very much. You know, he's in there, and what happened was that he his daughter died in a in a, in a motorbike accident. And that kind of triggered in him this search for evidence that, that the afterlife exists. So, so, so that's very much part of the story. And another an, another one of the sort of principal ghost hunters um, in the book, um, you, you know, he, he, uh, is a kind of quite, quite an in-depth character study of him. And, and, it, and, it, and it struck me that he was sort of quite lonely um in quite in lots of ways quite sad i don't mean sad in the nasty sense but unhappy individual who got his sense of status and meaning and purpose out of his role as this important ghost hunter and it was sort of very important for him so so yeah and it was also in that book that i kept i first came upon this idea that the self is a story so so in the book i i meet this um psychologist who says oh you know it's all just stories and uh, and actually many psychologists and neuroscientists believe that we are basically just these automatically behaving zombies and even the fact that we have free will at all is this story this useful story that makes us feel like we have this control over over ourselves and over reality that we don't actually have so so yeah all the ideas that run through all of my um books um really start with that ghost book it it seems to me that um and i don't know how much of this is is just the you know your ability to tell a story kind of amping it up but it seems to me that like often 
One thing I'm struck by in all your nonfiction is is that actually, however you approach the subject, the stakes get high for you quite quickly in that something that seems like it might be amusing or funny or about somebody else very quickly starts reflecting like it, it touches all of us right and and you know in uh in supernatural one of the things is it sounds you know through bits of the book it sounds a bit like you're having if not a, a breakdown then kind of like being a bit it sounds like you're spinning out quite a lot on this like nature of reality and what human beings are and that we might be just these kind of meat Yeah, zombies. don't forget I was 26. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was writing that book. So yeah, I was spinning out. I was also drinking a lot and uh, taking a lot of drugs when I was in my 20s. But 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 yeah, no, I was spinning out. I mean, it's all sincere. I was raised, a, um, uh, I, I was raised in a very Catholic household, very Catholic. And, um, um, uh, you know, my parents believe and still do in the literal reality of the devil. They believe the devil's this actual thing that exists in the world. Uh, but, but, but I was, you know, brought up. I never believed it for, for for a moment. I don't even remember believing in Father Christmas. So I, I've never believed that stuff. So, so, so when I, when when I started, you know, looking into the whole ghost thing, and actually some of this stuff started happening, and I couldn't explain it. Um, yeah, I definitely span out. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been spinning out as much then if I knew. Th- would, I would have been spitting out as much if I knew then what I know now about how the brain works and how the mind works and about how reality itself is this kind of weird hallucinations. But that, that explains quite a lot of what happened to me. But there are still some weird things, um, specifically the Enfield Poltergeist case, which I still scratch my head over, over that whole um, the, the, the ghost stuff. I still, I still don't the, the skeptical explanations of the, of the Enfield poltergeist uh, don't, don't ring true to me at all so that, that's that that one is still the head scratcher you because then you kind of like the it's almost like the it seems like in retrospect the natural development of that is when you go on to write uh heretics and you yeah. are looking at i suppose more pathological versions of what of people telling themselves stories and their explanatory styles for making sense of the world. I wondered if you, we could talk about that briefly because I think it's a really... I think it sets... I think in lots of ways it gives context for the stakes of the science of storytelling in that this isn't just like some abstract kind of drawing room thing that we can like sit around and smoke pipes and speculate on. It affects mm. our ability to talk about the world and it leads people down some very dark paths yeah so so the heretics is obviously the the sequel to, to will store versus supernatural although it stands alone as its own book but 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 that's you know the, the ghost bit really was looking at why do people believe in ghosts and uh, and the answer that i got was because it gives their lives meaning it's this story and then so the heretics is asking okay so um, it's just continuing the question, really saying, why is it that intelligent people like my dad, for example, what, how do they end up believing these crazy things? And, and it's actually the same answer. But but but, but by this time, um, I decided to actually take the science kind of seriously and actually learn about science and psychology in a, in a, in a kind of more serious way and actually answer the question properly rather than just sort of slightly mucking about with it and kind of chat, scratching my chin over it and so so, so 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 the answer that i essentially got was that was that the brain is a, is a storyteller 
And the story that it tells is the story of you. Uh, and as long as we're psychologically healthy, we're not suffering from something like depression or psychosis. Um, the story that it's telling is roughly that you are a, um, um, a, a, a flawed but essentially decent, morally uh, good character who is um, 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 fighting great odds in order to make your life, life better for yourself and or for the people around you. That's, that's, that's the story that the brain tells. And, of course, that's your archetypal hero uh, narrative. And what happens is that we, 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 the, the brain – the most important thing is the brain keeps that story going because that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what stops us – worrying about existential dread and all this other stuff um so 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 so, so what we do is is we tend to uncritically accept any kind of fact in inverted commas that we come across that flatters that heroic story and we find these crafty ways of rejecting um all the other um any any kind of counter evidence and so, so, so the longer we live and the smarter we are the better we are at finding evidence to back up these instinctive hunches, this kind of slightly made-up story about ourselves, um, and 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 so 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 the more kind of down these weird avenues we um, we end up, and probably the heart of that book is is the week I spent with David Irving, the the um, revisionist Nazi historian, and a, and a bunch of neo-Nazis. It, um, it, I, I found undercover. that like grueling to 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 even just read. I can't imagine what how how. It, well i can't imagine because you talk about it obviously but like i just mean the actual like almost like physical intensity of being exposed to i don't i don't mean to sound sort of over the top but it's it what what, you know how did you (laughs) how because you must have felt sort of well maybe not but guilty by association you know just like obviously there's a lot of talk when people talk about stuff and guilt by association and someone discussing you know give you know giving platforms to other people and stuff you're chatting with this person who well you're talking with this person who's saying some you know like incredible things uh yeah it it, it really felt yeah, just like extraordinary yeah stuff. when when you're when you're in that it feels like it it feels like it's kind of taking its toll on on you yeah, it was a weird. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was. Uh, I say I don't feel, didn't feel any sort of guilt by association. I didn't feel that that that, that, that was going on. But but it, but 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 it, but it was. You know, I've done lots of stories in the past that have been difficult and um, and involved hanging out with people that you wouldn't choose to hang out with ordinarily. But but the, uh, the sheer length of this, it was a week, and and the fact that I was undercover, so I had to pretend to be racist and. The potential danger of it. I was in Poland with these Nazis, <laughs> pretending to be one of them, and actually, you just type my name in and find my guardian, uh, <laughs> you know, biog up there. Um, it, it, yeah, it, yes, it, it was. It, it was. It, it was kind of. It was exhausting and it was worrying. There was the moment. I never forget the moment when I first arrived and met a couple of the guys at the kind of hotel in the in the hotel bar, and they just did, almost immediately started. Um, being just properly old school racist, not dog whistle racist, just racist racist in front of the barman and the people around. I just thought, oh God! And it was that sinking feeling of Jesus, this is going to be a long week. <laughs> it's going to be a long week. But 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 I, you know, it's one of those things that um that that, that since I wrote the Heretics, journalism like that has, bec- has become more controversial. But 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 my 
you, you know, my, my, my position in the Heretics, when I wrote that book, the, the, the kind of slightly fashionable thing, especially amongst us, I'm, I'm not, well, I'm, you know, I guess I don't want to say us because I don't want to make any assumptions about you, but as much as, you know, the, the left-wing reading classes was was, was the kind of atheist sceptical movement and Richard Dawkins was the big hero. And um, I was kind of sceptical about all that. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, I forgot where I was going with that. Um, you, were, you were talking about uh, that it it's become slightly more controversial since, but at the time, um, the atheist movement was... Yeah, that, sorry, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so what everybody said at the time, you know, at the time everybody was worried about creationism, for example, and they were worried about... Um, anti-vaccination was becoming a, a, an issue, but it, but it was kind of an, a, an emerging issue. People were very worried about things like homeopathy at the time. That was in the news a lot, homeopathy. And, um, and you know, the, 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 the general answer out there at the time was that people believe this crazy stuff because they're stupid, because they're idiots. So you get lots of people, you know, like that's the whole dorky, I don't want to particularly pick on Dawkins, but that's that kind of whole sceptics, atheists, sceptics in the pub attitudes that you got a lot of. It was a very kind of superior, mocking um, uh, uh, tone. And, and I was always very suspicious of that because, you know, smart people believe in crazy stuff too. David Irving, for whatever you think about David Irving, he's an intelligent man. He was well respected as a historian before he went on this kind of mad intellectual journey about um, kind of revisionist history of hitler and now we've moved as a culture we've 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 moved to a place where the explanation is that they're just evil they're monsters and that they're, they're you know it's, it's even more kind of story stuff really and i'm just as skeptical about that idea these are human beings that are, that are that have made a mistake about the world and i'm interested in um in finding out how they've made that mistake because those other two answers they're stupid or they're evil they're intellectual dead ends they're just full stops of an answer they're not interesting in any way to me so i'm, I'm much more interested in going beyond that convenient judgment and actually finding out what's going on do you think do you think do you See, I is it all also because I I'm just you know I'm positing this as you talked about your dad believing stuff that you don't believe. Is it yeah. also because if people are just saying this person's, you know, people who believe this are just thick. You look and it's somebody, one that you know isn't thick. Whatever they might believe, they're not stupid. But to somebody who you kind of you someone who you love and so those answers answers are kind of like thick or monstrous are always you know coming back to what well, you said yeah absolutely because that's exactly the answer that i came to about these nazis i mean the, 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 so a surprising amount of them if um uh, had parents who were in the second world war fighting with the germans on the on the the last night of the trip there was this viewing of the film Downfall, which, of course, is the film of the last seven days in the Hitler bunker. And one of the guys um, there said he didn't want to watch it because his dad was there and he found it too upsetting. I thought, bloody hell. And so, yeah, I think that your point is, 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 is there's, there's definite truth to that. I mean, I have to say, um, I don't, I'm not particularly close to my father. Um, um, so, so, so I don't when it's not that when people say. Uh, it's not that I feel offended on his behalf about the thick thing, but but my dad was a working class Yorkshire, came from a working class Yorkshire family, and won a scholarship to Oxford. So I know he's not thick. <laughs> you know, he's not a stupid man. So that's the mystery to me. Like I know he's not thick, 
he's really clever and intimidatingly so. So how is it that he believes this not crazy, crazy stuff about the literal truth of the devil? I mean, he, I was menaced as a child by this, by these Catholic ideas. I was threatened with being put into care when they found out that I'd slept with my first girlfriend. You know, it really was a serious. It was like serious stuff when we were growing up. It was this awful, dark catholic <laughs> household and, and so so absolutely i think part part of the journey of the heretics especially was finding out how is it that somebody like him has ended up believing this do you do you ever feel do you ever feel that sounds really traumatic i that do you ever feel do you ever feel angry at like some of these stories that have have such an effect on people's lives they almost seem I'm not meaning to absolve anyone who acts on them of guilt, but these stories, these ideologies, these powerful narratives almost seem to have like a life of them in of themselves. You know, they outlive people and they have their kind of own power. I would be, I would feel really angry in your position, I I guess. No, I think it's the opposite. Honestly, Tim, I think it, it, it makes me less angry because if you become angry at someone else's story, that's just your story flaring up. The whole point, so the thing that I've learned sort of doing 20 years of being a journalist too is, 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 is that when you, when you meet people and you really understand their story, it almost always builds empathy because what you realise is that they're not monsters. They're not crazy. They, they just have a different experience of life to you and they're sincerely expressing that, that kind of story world in which they exist so 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 so, so it, i mean for me it has the effect of taking you out of that moral judgment place and the, the place of anger and going okay well it, 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 when you when you truly understand the idea that this, this idea that the self is a story isn't just a like a, a like a cool ted talk deepak chopra <laughs> kind of thing that, that sounds like it's the kind of thing you want to say in the pub and everyone's going to go oh yeah man uh, it's genuinely true it, 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 uh, and and to understand why it's true you, you kind of have to reverse it it's not that the the human self resembles a story and mimics a story it's the other way around we, stories mimic human selves the reason we tell stories in the way that we do it, 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 it mimics the, the kind of these neurological and psychological processes. So, 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 and the story that the brain tells is far more important than the, the truth. You know, there, and and we know that intelligence is absolutely no inoculation to to, to these ideas. And in fact, it's it's thought to be the opposite. That the, the smarter you are, the better you are at finding reasons to um, back up your story, and you're no better than anyone else at, at working to undermine your own story. So, you know, when ideology um, meets science, I or truth, ideology almost always wins out. So, so and you've only got to look around you to see that people on both sides of the Brexit debate, that they're smart people on both sides. And Brexit's one, I'm, you know, one of the ones that I just cannot think my way out of. I cannot, I find it so hard to understand the pro-Brexit position. I just cannot get my head around it. But I know there's some really smart people who cannot get their head around my anti-Brexit position. So, 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 so. so it, 
uh, yeah, for me, it takes the anger away. It, it, it helps take the anger away because you understand that we're all broken, we're all flawed, we're all mistaken in certain ways. And it's very, very hard to think your way out of your mistakes. I, I think <laughs> it's, it's frustrating when you say it like that because sometimes I want to keep my anger. Like, it's difficult for me when I'm sort of on a, on a big kind of remain <laughs> rant and then I'm speaking to my nan and she says well i just you know i just want to i just want to get i just want to get out you know i just yeah. um and then she just she started crying when i was saying talking about it and i was like i don't want this like i don't feel where's my triumph i've made a brexiteer cry i feel like an asshole and i think in that situation yeah. i probably was you know i i and yeah I, it's i i agree with you i i'm but i'm aware that there's this part of me that's like going don't make yeah. me see these people as human again these people even in that language i want exactly that's the story brain that's the story you know there's, there's a, the, the story thinking turns the world into heroes and villains and the world isn't heroes and villains the world is people with different perceptions of the world sincerely different perceptions of the world most people want to make the world a better place but we have different ideas and different beliefs about how to go about doing that that, that that's sorry that's that's jim should i say that again so you don't get yeah, the phone yeah please, please go go for it yeah, yeah. um so, so, so um in fact, let me just unplug it so it doesn't ring again all right here we go um so so um can you hear that in the background? I no, what is it? No, okay, <laughs> good, good. Because it's, it's the other phone ringing now. Okay, um, so, 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 so yeah, you, I, I forgot what so I was So you're now. talking about um, so like this idea of, like I, I was talking about hang, wanting to hang on to my sense of good and evil and those yeah, people being the enemy. Yeah, that's it. So, so, so what the story said in Brain, that's what it does. It turns the world into the kind of heroes and villains. And the world isn't really made up of heroes and villains. The world is made up of people who sincerely see the world uh, in different ways uh, and they're not they, they don't disagree with you because they're evil they don't disagree with you because they're thick largely they disagree with you because they have a completely different perception of reality and so so, so but, but but because the, the brain is this storyteller that wants to motivate us and, and and part of why we feel these moral emotions is that it motivates us to act it motivates us to recreate the world in our um in a, you know, so it matches our perception. In order to do that, it um, it it kind of tells us that these are these are our enemies, these are our villains, and they need to be need to be vanquished. I and mean, what the the, the 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 two kind of things that I really remember from the Heretics, and, and really the Heretics is far more relevant today than it was when when I wrote it. When it, it was really about the skeptical community, but now you, you know it's much more kind of relevant now. The Heretics, I think, and that was the two things. And one was that um, um. When you've got all the good on your side and they're all the bad on their side, you're wrong, you know, largely. I mean, most of the time you're wrong. Of course, you can think of rare events in history when you're not wrong. But most of the time, if, if, you, if you really think that all of the good is in, on your side and all of the bad is on their side, that's your storytelling brain. You know, the story that your brain's telling of the world is is working in overdrive because that's far too simplistic the world is incredibly complex and even something like brexit is incredibly complex and it will have a and, and it will have a series of trade-offs some good effects and some bad effects and it's just that one side focuses on the good effects and one side focuses on the bad effects and we edit out 
the stuff that's inconvenient to to us. So that's the first one. And the second one is to watch the emotion. I mean, so, so when when people are getting emotional about something, especially something moral or political, the, the the very equipment with which they're experiencing reality is becoming warped and bent. So so, so, so I'm very wary now of of anybody that I see getting very emotional, not because I think they're dishonest, but it's because they're, they're not able to process their arguments properly, because because that emotion is a sign that they are that that, that, that they are that again it's that storytelling brain. They're they're in that moral place of heroes and villains and trying to change the world. So so so, so those are those are my two sort of big takeaways from the heretics and. and I, I, I still really believe those things, and I'm still, as I say, even especially when it comes to scientists. When, you know, when you've got a scientist or a science expert becoming very passionate about a political position and then trying to find data to back up this political position, I'm very skeptical. Not because I think they're lying, but because I think, but, but because I think their brains are doing an amazing job of doing that thing that brains do, which is making making their owners feel heroic and feel correct. Well, th- I mean, th- and that goes back to. Um, uh, your first book and somebody being bereaved and then you know giving their life over to you know yes you know from his perspective gathering evidence but in a way Mm. that is through a lens that is driven by emotion and a kind of need and it's I you know I'm I'm completely guilty of all those things on trivial <laughs> levels and I, I'm sure on major levels as well. But it, it's so... I mean, when you were talking about that idea of like right and wrong, it just makes me think my grandmother grew up in Nazi Germany and, you know, was a secretary for the Gestapo. And my dad, on one extremely awkward Boxing Day, asked her why she didn't do anything about the holocaust and she said there were bombs falling from the sky we thought we knew who our enemies were is that what yeah. she said that's an amazing quote she she she, she said i mean that's almost poetry that's she fantastic. said she said that she had managed to put to the back of her mind they went on a school trip and they went past um i was Someone on her school trip, they went past Auschwitz station and someone on the school trip said, why are there so many empty prams on Auschwitz station? And the teachers hadn't had an answer. And she said that there was stuff like that that she was able to put to the back of her mind because she was convinced she knew like and you know there were literally like munitions falling out of the sky and blowing up buildings. So it see any alternate any sort of nuance uh, she didn't have any she didn't feel she had any particular desire to explore it right it, it how, what, how but, could but, it serve but also, her but also it, it, it's deeply unfair because it uh, and this is actually where the next <laughs> the next book selfie comes in i mean selfie is really about the power of culture to 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 inform um who we are you know and this idea that we think of culture as this sort of slightly shallow things like opera and it's the newspapers we read or whatever but 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 our culture is built into our brains you know that's why we have this such these these such extended childhoods as human beings we we're born with these semi-finished brains and the next 20 years um we spend packing the rules and norms and kind of facts in inverted commas of our culture into our brains and we internalize our environment we internalize our culture and european culture in itself including british european culture 
pre-World War II was unbelievably anti-Semitic, but it was especially anti-Semitic in Germany. So your um, grandmother w- was enculturated and raised in, a, in an anti-Semitic world, um, surrounded by people who were telling her in all sincerity that the problem that we've got is that the Jewish people are this you know, virus or whatever they said. And when everybody tells you this thing is true and, when you, and you see evidence for it everywhere, that's your truth. And of course, it was an awful, terrible mistake. But, 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 but you can't go it, – it's, it's not only unfair, it's kind of scientifically ignorant of us to, to go back in time and judge people peering out of our culture, to look into their culture and go, well, you should have known. Well, that, that, that's not how brains work. You, you, you know, that, 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 that there will be things that – in 20, 30 years' time, people will be looking back on us now and go, God, you should have known. I mean, my guess is it's something to do with animals. <laughs> but, but, you know, how could you have done this? I mean, every culture looks back and, and thinks that at, at, at other times and places. But that's it, 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 this idea that, 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 that we are able to kind of separate ourselves from our environments and look down upon ourselves and make these um, kind of godlike moral judgments about what's right and wrong is, is simply false. Moral right and wrong is is a product of our is largely a product of our of our culture, and the beliefs that we have largely come out of our culture. So do you do you see yourself as? I mean, I, I'm, the reason I'm pausing is because I realise immediately my uh, the question I'm about to ask, and then do you see yourself is is complicated by what you've just been saying about how we <laughs> see ourselves and how that's affected by culture and how we can't and you know questioning some of this you know taking a position of skepticism towards um hard sort of like free will uh are you a collect are you a collectivist would you see yourself not in the political sense of uh, like anarcho collectivism but in the kind of like collective society that you, you, I mean, I suppose this has been something that has traditionally been seen as kind of like East versus Western kind of traditions. But yeah. would you say you're more in the you, your thinking is more in the tradition of what has often been portrayed as being a kind of like uh, non-Western kind of collectivist view of personhood? Not really. I, I'm sort of in the middle again. So, so, so. I, the, I, I, I try not to see the world uh, in terms of solid rights or wrongs. I try to see the world in terms of, of trade-offs. Any complex idea, whether it's individ, you know, Western individualism, Eastern collectivism, or even a moral subject like abortion or Brexit, as I said, it's a, it's a complex system. And, that, and therefore, it's not going to be a pure right or a pure wrong. It's going to be a, a trade-off. A series of trade-offs, some good and some bad, and, and, and in terms of kind of individualism versus collectivism, um, I, I think when you go too far into the individualistic end of things, it, you, you forget the fact that we are a collective species. We are a tribal species. The reason that we've taken over the world is because we're really unbelievably good at cooperating. But, but but that's how we get on by cooperating by helping each other. So I think when you go too far to that individualist you know, potential, potential, perhaps right-wing end, you lose part of that kind of essential part of our humanity. But then on the other side of things, if you if you if you veer too much from individualism, uh, you, you end up um, turning your back on what has been the greatest engine for 
for progress that the world has ever seen, and that's kind of individualist capitalism, this idea that we reward people for their efforts. We reward people for their work and their success and their ambition. And that's just been an incredibly – I know it's – again, it's a trade-off. It's not a perfect system. That There are terrible things about capitalism, but, 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 but it's pulled millions and millions and millions of people out of poverty. So, 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 so for me, um, it's an argument for centrism. you've got to understand the the unbelievable power of markets and individualism, but you've also got to understand our our essential collective nature. So so it's about having a balance between those two things. I mean, that's that's, that's where I sit on on that stuff. Can you talk about, I know you talk about this in the book, but just for listeners, can you talk about how the science of storytelling came came about? How you you ended up... uh, writing it because like now we've been talking through these um i know we haven't touched on your novel yet but like I'm, now we've talked about these three non-fiction books it seems almost inevitable that you would end up kind of going to the core something that speaks to all of those three books we've talked about but i just wondered if you i know that that in itself is a piece of myth making and i just wondered if you could talk how about how the book came together no that's that's kind of true really because i i kind of felt that there was kind of slight frustration that i felt with the heretics and with selfie i had two halves of one answer Uh, and if you and if you put them both together you'd have something that um you'd have this description of the human self which i'd never seen anywhere else the human self as a story i think i've got half the way with the heretics but I, but i missed out on the whole stuff about the the tribal self and all this other stuff so and the and the culture and I, and i had this thing where oh my god i've got these two halves i really want to put together but 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 and that came about through these courses these writing courses that i do so i start you know i started um teaching writing courses at the guardian um, in 2014, it was based on the, the heretics, like, ideas and the heretics, because because when I was writing the heretics, I was also working on my um, my first novel, and I you know bought lots of those how to write a novel books, and I noticed that that, that what the, you know the storytellers and all the neuroscientists and psychologists I've been interviewing were saying a lot, often saying the same thing. For example, the importance of change. Speaking to a uh, neuroscientist, was telling me oh, that we can't perceive without change, and we're obsessed with change, and the brain always goes to change, is attracted to moments of change. And then you read a book like Into the Woods by John York, or, or any story, but really that tells you about the unbelievable importance of change in story. So you think, oh my God, this is, you know, not only is it true that the self is a story, it's even true. To, to the extent that you can you can get insights from how to write on the back of some of this stuff so that that was the beginning of this uh, of doing the course and then the, the course I was, you know I was doing the course as I was researching selfies so all that started getting packed into the course too and then it just came to a point where I just thought well I could actually I've probably got enough stuff for a small book here can you it's really difficult for me to know uh, like a what like a good way in to talk about this because there's so many different things about structure and but I, I suppose because like it's full of like in really fascinating nuggets and that's not to diminish them I mean some of them are, feel quite like existentially fundamental like that idea about we can't perceive the world when it's not changing in some way but I wondered if you could talk about one of the pieces of uh, like scientific research that you found most interesting when kind of like how it relates to your writing creating a story that works i think well i mean 
so I, I think it's not a specific piece of research, but it, but it's just it, it's an idea from that that it's basic the basic idea of neuroscience really, uh, or the, you know the, one of the sort of the big findings of neuroscience, and, and that's that um, kind of the self and the world and the kind of the reality that we experience of, of the outside world it, it, it is connected. It's one and the same thing. So, 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 kind of, we see out of our beliefs, we see out of our mistakes, we see out of our, our, ourselves. So, so how it works essentially is that that, that we, we don't see out of our eyes, we don't hear out of our our ears. Information only comes in one way into the brain, and that's in, and that's where it stays. And all the information is translated by the senses into these millions and millions of electrical pulses, and the brain reads these electrical pulses. A bit like a computer reads computer code. It's analogous to that, and then creates this hallucination of reality, that, that and, and plops you in the middle of it, and it fools you into thinking that, that that that's actual reality that you're actually looking out of your eyes as if they're windows. But you're not. You're just stuck inside your head, and, and that was a real game changer for me in terms of story because it, that's why um, um, character and plot are indivisible, and, and I think that's the, that, that's the major problem that, that that people have when i teach them especially i do a week-long faber course and especially the faber course which is much more of a workshop environment and we talk about ideas uh, and the most common problem is that people have these great ideas for plots and have interesting ideas for characters but they're separate things and they do kind of shove them together and think i'll probably work um but but actually the the, the two concepts are you know the plot comes out of character it, 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 the, the, these things are kind of absolutely um kind of connected and, and when you open a really great st- novel or start watching a really great film you have this amazing experience of of of, of, see- of meeting this incredibly interesting vibrant vivid flawed um character and seeing the world from their eyes and and and, and the thing about kind of character and character flaw is that is that, is that we you know we it's, it's, it's this idea, I call it the, he- the brain's this hero maker. So it's not as though we have these flaws and we go, oh, I've got these flaws, I've got these problems. We think our flaws often are the best things about ourselves. We, we think our flaws are amazing. You know, we, we, we tell our, the brain tells us that we're completely right to believe this X, Y, Z things that are actually completely wrong. So the example in the book that I go into, you know, I, I, there's a couple of stories that I go into in some detail in the book, and one of them is the remains of the day. And that, of course, is Stevens, the, the, the butler, who, who, who believes that the, the British are the best in the world. And the reason that the British are the best in the world is because they have this quality of emotional response restraint and and he he believes ab that absolutely to his core even as um ishiguro shows us the awful awful ramifications of this that, that this idea has had in his life the night his father dies when he when he couldn't connect with him at all the the, the lost potential happy love with this woman miss kenton who, who he worked with um but, but he he clings on to this idea like like it's a life raft and and i think often at the, at the beginning of our of our, of our best stories it, you know it's we see these flawed characters who are absolutely convinced that their flaw is the best thing about them. It's like Scrooge. He's absolutely defined by his miserliness and his cynicism. Um, and he thinks that's the best thing about him. And, and, and I think it's really that. That's who we are as human beings. Again, as long as we're not suffering from something like clinical depression or psychosis, we, we, we generally think we're, we, we, we're, pretty, we're pretty right about everything. And, and, but, but actually, we're wrong about a lot of things. We just can't see the things that we're wrong about. So I think it's, it's that whole 
it's all these findings from from psychology and neuroscience that that, that that really have changed the way that I see stories. It's fascinating because, and I know you you talk about this in the book as well. But the, those t- are two characters are also great examples of characters who their flaws are also an ideology or a worldview or a way of chopping up the world that they believe yeah. is going to keep them safe and to a certain extent is going to lead them to you know like safety and uh shelter and food and all of those survival things yeah yeah you know like stevens believes he starts off talking about you know the most important thing is creating you know a good you know butler plan like you need to plan the and and his idea that you can just sheet you can cover some rooms in dust sheets and you just there's just parts of the house that you you just shut off and don't use <laughs> and you and you yeah, plan everything yeah, yeah. and of course you know that is how he treats his emotional life as well and his brain that he believes that if you do that you will you can weather any storm you know there's you know they've lost yeah. some stuff but he thinks you know all you have to do is is just is just to dust sheet some stuff that you don't want to deal with yeah yeah, and that, and that's and that's what we do. That's that 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 that, that that's how we live our lives. And, and and you know, entire entire um worlds and lives are created out of these flaws. So so you know, I know we keep some of you can talk about Brexit, but um in some of the Brexit coverage I saw recently, um there there was a piece about what the hell, what is Theresa May's problem? Why is it that she can't? get this deal through but also why can't she get on with anyone she can't get on with the Europeans. she can't get on with the tory party she can't get on with anyone why is it and someone close to her an anonymous source told a journalist that theresa may's problem is that she always thinks she's the uh, she's the only adult in the room i thought that is absolutely brilliant that's exactly this kind of sacred floor that that, that i'm that, that, that i'm talking about so so any situation theresa may goes in she believes she's the only adult in the room and i love that one because it immediately suggests a behavior that's how she's controlling the world that's how she feels safe something's happened to her in her past that she, that's made her feel like she is the always the only adult in the room and of course that leads her to make mistakes to patronize people to refuse to take them seriously to not take their negotiations seriously and and also you you think about it from from a creating story point of view if you've got this character and their kind of sacred flaw the flaw that they've made sacred about the world that they cannot get past that they think is absolutely true is i am the only adult in any situation i go into what kind of life is that person going to build for themselves wow well one of them is politician isn't it one of them is politician that's amazing that's such a good like peg for a character i don't mean you know i know it's kind of reductive but it's amazing exactly exactly so in the in the book i write about you've got to find your character's sacred flaw that the flaw in them that, that that rather than them seeing as a flaw that they've made sacred it's the sacred truth about the world and how to survive in it it's like Stephen's emotional restraint for Theresa May. So that, so that kind of jumped out of the newspaper for me. It's like that is that's such a good one, and I think a really good sacred flaw are these ones that suggest control, because what that's what brains ultimately want. They want to control the world in such a way that we get those Darwinian aims, survival and reproduction. And in in in, in the human world, humans live in, in a realm of other people. You know, we're these psychological creatures that live in these in, in these psychological communities. So, you know, we're not like anteaters that have to just control the world of ants. We have to we couldn't have to control the world of other people. So, 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 so human flaws are about how to con- the mistakes in how they should go about controlling the human world. For Stevens, it's emotional restraint. For you know, I write also in the book about Lawrence of Arabia and in, in, in the film T. T. Lawrence has this kind of 
arrogant, showy rebelliousness. That's how he controls the world. And of course, in in a city, you put that you put that flaw in a in a war, and bad things are going to happen. You don't want arrogant rebelliousness in a war zone because then you're going to end up with a horrible warlord. This is what he he became. And Theresa May, you put that you you put that flaw in the Brexit negotiations, and, and what you're going to get, you're going to get what we've got, which is <laughs> chaos. I I really. Because that really start, ring now you're saying that it really rings true with me and my experience of you know like I manage like a like a pretty severe panic disorder and I think you know like those like uh, like Japanese soldiers who were like found on like Pacific Islands in the 1970s refusing to believe that the war had ended and they yeah. were and and yeah. they uh, you know and they heard radio reports that you know japan surrendered there's no war they said oh well that must be american propaganda there were like messages sent down to them and they were like no like japan cannot have lost the war and and actually had to be sort of restrained eventually because they were shooting people on the island but um that's how i am my brain is with panic like at some point in my life there's been times where being shit scared of stuff has really served me it's like this is going to be dangerous like watch your back and now i'm just like making a sandwich in a jar of caper capers falls out the cupboard and i'm like shit run and 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 and, but but my brain has you know it's like that's the kind of like same floor it's like going this is going to serve you at being okay in the world so you know, like as far as my brain's concerned, you can prize that worldview. Everything's fucking scary and is going to kill you if you don't keep on your toes. You can prize that out of my cold, dead hands because that's what we need to get through the world. And it seems to you're saying yeah. that that is, you know, that's what m- can make a really, really successful character in fiction is someone who has got yeah. a belief that they are carrying into the wrong that's, situations. That's and that's how, that's how brains work. So we see evidence for our flawed beliefs everywhere. But it's you know it's it's, the, it's the idea of confirmation bias. We 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 don't look for evidence of the truth. We look at evidence to confirm our biases. So those Japanese people that you describe on the island, they saw evidence everywhere that the war was still on. Every airplane, look there it is. Stevens in in remains of the day. Emotional restraint is the key to success and to get status. There's evidence for that everywhere because he'd spent a life living in service for aristocratic people who who expressed and all the servants uh, that he worked with um, and housekeepers that he worked with expressed emotional restraint and, and and the better they did at that the more respected they were so he saw evidence for that truth everywhere it, it, it imbued his whole life so it so, so it, and that's that's what we're like so those brexiteer people see evidence that they're right everywhere and us people on the other side see evidence that we're right everywhere so in order to break that belief apart that takes a huge amount of pressure it takes a huge amount of evidence and that's the job of the plot so the job of the plot is to break that belief apart this is is to is to throw that character around such that they that, that they can no longer believe finally that this that, that this is correct and then hopefully they they, they change oh my gosh that's so amazing that I don't want to sort of be a, a like I that just that it's so true and it's so fascinating and it also makes me realize I'm not in any way as much as I kind of like you know every time I read a book you know I'm like wow what a great protagonist I wish I was in this story a lot of the time I'm like actually to be a protagonist of a book 
you have to like like the ass has to fall out your world basically like something has yeah. to change so fundamentally that you c- like it's like stuff breaks apart it's like a kind of mini breakdown that a character goes through yes exactly it is a it, it is a it is a mini or even a major you know breakdown one of the ones i talk about in the, in the book is king lear of course you've got that famous scene in the middle of the thing where the big his belief is that he's king he's the king of everything and people love him unconditionally and and um when his two when two of his daughters um when, when sorry when when cordelia when one of his daughters behaves uh, in a way that contradicts that belief he just goes completely um furious at her um and then the other two the other two daughters um conspire against him because he, he he's completely locked in that belief that he's the king of everything and everyone loves him unconditionally he cannot see that, he, that those two daughters are plotting against him and when he does finally see it he has a lit- you know he's literally broken down on the moor with the thunder and the lightning um yes yeah, so, 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 so i think that's right i think that's right i mean or you know or in the remains of the day it takes it's you know much more of a subtle story it takes it takes the entire book for Stevens to have his first inkling that emotional restraints might not be the best strategy for getting what you want out of life, and I think it's the I think it's the last very very last paragraph in the book where he he, he finally admits that perhaps he might consider emotional warmth yeah. <laughs> going forwards. You know, uh, so, 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 so so yeah, that, that 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 that's essentially it. But but you as I say, you've got to you've got to. I mean, in order for St- Stevens to um, admit that Ishiguro puts him at the beginning, at the end, at the beginning of the end of the British Empire. So it's it's post war. It's it, Britain is no longer what it was. It's definitely no longer the, in any way the best in the world at anything. Um, he, he takes away his aristocratic boss and gives him gives him an American businessman as a boss, um, and then he sends him out on this. Uh, you know, road trip out out into the world where he's never been before to meet ordinary people and then confronts him with this lost love that he could have had so so you know Shigeru putting put loading Stevens up with using the plot to load him up with 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 with, with, with enough weight that finally that sacred flaw that belief finally cracks apart on that last page I, I, I think you know you mentioned this as well you talk a bit about the sort of different plot shapes but i guess if that protagonist isn't able to change then what we're looking at is you know a tragedy basically uh, where 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 we just see them they they get an opportunity to change they don't and they're just sort of smashed by it and then we learn from their mistakes exactly so so in tragedy they often double down on their floor so it's not just yeah so they 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 just go yeah so they they double down on it they 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 that they rather than rather than taking the opportunity to learn and to see to wonder if there's a better way or maybe they do wonder but but essentially but ultimately they don't and they and they yeah and they and they, and they go spiraling out of control yeah that that's that's essentially the tragedy can you um i, I wonder because it draws from so many things that we've talked about but um you talk briefly in the book about um bartlett's studies with uh war of the ghosts which i know to like yeah. summarize in itself is like yeah slightly complicated by the fact that's part of the point of it but i wondered if you could talk about that those experiments or studies that he did because i i feel like it's such an important thing and it it, it just draws in a, a few threads that we've talked about about kind of like culture and making yeah, sense so of the world this is 
Yeah, so this the, the, this kind of touches on all, all, on all kinds of ways in which the, the the brain is this storyteller, and of course one of the one one of the one of the reasons the brain is a storyteller is it wants to reduce complexity and make the it wants to make the complex simple, and that's why story is dangerous because it, it oversimplifies stuff in order to make it comprehensible and understandable. So the War of the Ghost is this really. Um, it's a short story, but it's but, but it's a it's a Native American story. So it's from a different, a very different culture to ours in the West, and it, 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 it's not a story such that you, is is easy to understand to the average Westerner. And in fact, when I was trying to explain the story the, in the book, my proof editor in the publishing process kept sending it back saying this is so hard to understand that's the point point. it's really hard to understand and so what Bartlett did was he 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 got a bunch of young um kind of western students and 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 he he asked them to read i think the war of the ghosts and then uh, various um um uh, stages going forward in time he asked them to retell the story and what he found was that was that every time they retold it they would simplify it and formalize it, it would become more western more logical more understandable from their kind of perspective which shows you kind of a that you know, again that's the brain the brain storytelling process the brain's like an editor um turning the kind of chaos and complexity in the rough edges of reality into something much more simple and understandable and it also shows you how the the memory too is a is a storyteller i mean what's one of the disturbing things about memory is that is that memory is warped in service of this hero narrative we have our memory is rescripted very often in such a way that we remember ourselves as the moral moral hero of our memories in in in, in, in and often we weren't that person i think like it you know couples especially who've been together a long time will often report sort of (laughs) just completely unconsciously appropriating one another's anecdotes and remembering them as the hero right yeah that was me. No, I said that. No, I said, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's embarrassing when it happens and, in, and enraging because you just convince and then sometimes you find out that you're wrong and it's, it's, it's disturbing. But that's, the, that's, the, that's again, the brain isn't this um, computer processing reality. It's a, it is a storyteller from the ground up. It's telling you a story. I found it so interesting when you were talking about, um, you do a, a, a few bits about um, people with... Uh, when yeah, who start suffering partial blindness or things that happen to people when they're in flotation tanks, which is really interesting to me because I've just been in a, a flotation tank for the first time this week. So oh, I wow. got to experience <laughs> like fl- fairly florid hallucinations um, uh, oh, wow. as I was in there for, a, you know, an hour in pitch darkness, complete oh. silence. My brain just started going, are, are you sure? would you not like to see a giant uh, a giant 3d face floating in the darkness and i'd like i'm not like yeah yeah yeah, a giant a giant uh giant 3d sort of woman's face um that looked subjectively maybe six foot high um uh talking uh and i'm you know it's i don't have any recorded psychosis or anything i think that that's fairly normal for people if they're in those situations to that's, when I first took acid when I was young, when I, and I had an, you know, acid hallucinations, I was amazed to find that, you know, when you, when you think about taking acid, you think it's all pink elephants and paisley shapes. But it's not. Actual reality starts changing. It's actual re- people's, you know, I thought that the woman, there was a, there was a girl kind of almost uh, sort of um, lying next to me. And, and I was, was looking forward and she'd give me the finger. And I'd look around and she hadn't moved. She was just, she was just asleep. And then I turn around and there she's giving me a finger again. I mean, it's unbelievable. It, it's uh, it, but but then that, but then I now of course I understand that. And that's that that 
all of reality is a hallucination. So it's so when you hallucinate, it's just the the hallucination is just changing. Do you think that I'm so? Do you think your experience of like psychedelics is sort of like a slightly it has made you has, has helped kind of has helped you have this like slight level of skepticism towards the stories we're telling yourself because there's nothing quite like uh doing something like that to go oh yeah, how I do i settle so. on I, this one being the real one yeah i suppose it has had an effect i remember once when i um when i when i when i, when I, I used to take speed a lot and i remember <laughs> oh, um um when i when i was on speed it's like the best feeling ever and one of the things I loved about being on speed was that you just felt completely insignificant, like nothing you did mattered. It was this unbelievable feeling of freedom. You got a real sense of yourself as this, as this kind of dot in the world and that, that was going to die. And it did, just didn't matter. what You could do anything and it was fine. And then the next day when you're having your awful, awful amphetamine come down and you really were borderline suicidal, you would be depressed for exactly the same reasons. You'd be going, oh, it's pointless everything's pointless i'm just useless i'm just pointless i'm just a speck so it was just this weird thing insight about just it's just the same fact but the the kind of story you tell about it changes everything yeah it's 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 i think i don't i don't want to ever sort of put forward uh drugs as being like a good way to um kind of like develop psychologically (laughs) but there is something about riding out six or eight hours going i remember being at a festival when it was like 10 a.m in the morning and um a guy was just walking around crying and his mate was shouting at him going mate why you gotta carry the weight of the world on your shoulders because that's a big ass weight <laughs> and and then he was shout. he was like going we've all made a mistake you shouting at someone have you ever made a mistake someone went yeah he was like oh, there you well, go like a good friend and 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 i i he went I heard him go, you, have you made a mistake? And I was thinking when he asked me, I'm going to say no. And then I heard that and the person paused and there was about five seconds and he went, say you made a mistake or I'll kick your fucking head in. (laughs) 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 And he he did kind of like pollute the sample slightly. But you know, you you hear that and from outside (laughs) it, you go, go to bed, get up, have a cup of tea and some toast. I, these questions will be easier to deal with but you know you yeah. can you can tell that that's not going to end well and i feel like you know sometimes having gone through that a couple of times a few come downs you kind of go it you can just kind of sometimes you l- learn to be a bit more skeptical of what your brain is telling you and sometimes just sit yeah, back and but, wait but it- but but also we're just with depression anyway yeah. and, 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 and bad moods anyway. I mean, that's what a lot of this finding out about the psychology has taught me is that, you know, the unbelievably powerful idea of confabulation is that, is that you know, even when we're talking about why we're feeling what we're feeling, why we believe what we believe, why we want to do what we want to do, we're just making it up. It's a confabulation. We have no access to the truth about why we do what we do or why we feel what we feel. Why are you feeling depressed today? You can go to therapy and make up a story about it, but it's only going to be a story because you just don't know and certain so that's helped me with you know going through as you know so many of us do periods of depression it's just i i, I now know as, as far as i can to, to step away from it and and just think well it's just weather there's no reason i'm going to get to why it's here but i just need to step away from it accept that i'm going through this weather at the moment and i know it's gonna kind of kind of clear up so it's, it's, it's kind of a 
so, so finding out some of this stuff is is a relief because it because because knowing that it's just a story kind of frees you from this compulsion you have to to kind of tell it because then as soon as you've told this story i'm depressed because of x y and z and the next thing is well i'm gonna fix it because of is by doing a b and c and of course very often you can't you just you've just got to put up and, with and, it. and the story kind of sets its own terms often which are kind yeah. of arbitrary or ridiculous like you're going to mm. feel good when this happens or you're going to feel good when you earn this much or whatever and it's just like you get there and it's like oh the story's changed now fuck fuck yeah that's right I, that's a really good example that's that I mean, and, and that's and, and that's one of the things about these stories is that you can't think your way out of them you just can't you can't you, you can know logically that this whole say brexit versus non-brexit debate is 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 uh, you know it's just kind of warring tribes and no one really knows what they're talking about it doesn't actually matter that much um but um well i mean it does matter that's that's, that's probably a really bad example but 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 but, but yeah you, you um okay i'll give you an example so so you know in the heretics i write about one of the nazis i overheard him saying you know even when i was nine i remember seeing these these war these little toy soldiers and thinking oh I want to be on the side of the Nazis. I remember thinking that's mad because at nine years old you didn't know anything about the Second World War and so you had that belief in you already and all you've been doing is spending you spent your adult life looking you know building up evidence to, to to back up that initial instinct you had about the world. And then I realised quite recently that I'm exactly the same. The first ever strong political belief I remember having was when I was about 13 and I was in art class. Um, and my friend Carl, who was working class guy, um, said that he, 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 if he could vote, he, he would vote Maggie Thatcher in the next election. And I, I was furious with him. Like, I didn't want to be friends with him anymore. It's absolutely – how could you say that? How could you say that? Um, I didn't know anything about Maggie Thatcher. I was a Lib Dem or like a social democrat guy. And the thing is, at 44 years old, I still am. I still am. So what does that say about my ability to – process and pass reality i've just just like that nazi just spent the last 30 years finding evidence to back up stuff i believe without before i knew anything at all about the world so it builds in this humility i think despite all these thing negative things that stories can do or ways that they can i suppose trick us because like assigning moral intent to stories is you know ridiculous um but it's clear from all your books and, you know, reading through all the ex brilliant examples that you give in the science of storytelling. And look, I never have anyone on the show and then go, well, I didn't enjoy the book, but it might be your cup of tea. Try it. Like, obviously, <laughs> I don't get people on and go, I thought it was a bit shit. But, um, you know, I, but I genuinely just found it fascinating to the point of being a bit jealous. Um, and I know that and I also just know so many other writers at the moment are are you know raving about it and having like little mini oh, brain really know, genuinely so many people like in the i mean if i call it us the community it sounds a bit sinister but like certainly a lot of writers all across the spectrum of genres i know are, are consuming it and finding it fascinating and learning oh, that's stuff really good to know thank you too. but um you know it's clear from all the examples of stories you give in in, in it and the fact that you write yourself um that you you love stories, right? I think it's fair to say that you've found stories fascinating. And like you said at the beginning, they helped you through heartbreak, helped you make sense of the world. Mm. So I wondered if just to sort of like round things off, if you could touch on some of the, you know, some of the positive things that stories um, do understand 
you know where the door is and stuff some positive things for uh, of like what storytelling <laughs> does you know some of the reasons we need them yeah well that that that's the thing. So, so, so that's where the book begins. Really, is that, is that without story, we're just going to end up, you know, just in, in utter existential despair. Because especially in this post-scientific age, we know that we know the truth about reality, and that's that, that it's pretty bleak. We're going to die, and so is everyone we love. <laughs> and then the universe is going to stop expanding, and everything's going to be obliterated. So that's really depressing. But what 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 kind of it's story? It's story that keeps us away from that void it's i mean it's a story that gives our lives meaning like literally without stories our lives have no meaning and you know the the, the human there's the, a the story of every ordinarily functioning human is i'm going to go after this thing and uh, and it's, this thing is really meaningful and important and i'm going to um i'm, I'm going to sacrifice and put effort into achieving this thing and then that's going to make my life and the, and, the, and perhaps the life of the people around me better in some way and so so, so, so that's the meaning of life that that and it's and, it, and it's the story so, so, so that's the, that that's yeah i mean I, I don't want to come across like i'm down on stories I, i'm not <laughs> like sto- st- without story we, we, we're in, in lots and lots of trouble and of course i mean that, and that's the other sort of slightly complex thing about heroes in 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 reality you know heroes in 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 lots of fiction are Kind of wonderful, admirable people, but he- heroes in reality are often not wonderful and admirable people. They're often very flawed people, and what and what you find kind of heroes are are people who become utterly, utterly lost in the world of their stories, such that they they, they completely lose themselves in this kind of morally drenched heroes, black and white heroes versus villains world, and and and, it, and it's those people that change the world sometimes for the better, um, like Gandhi. But sometimes for the worse, like Hitler. So, 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 so uh, often the stories are le- leading us to dark places. But just as often, thank God, those stories kind of hypnotise and possess people who end up changing the world for the better. So, 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 so that's. I, I've just been reading a book actually um, uh, called Inventing Human Rights, and, and the author, the historian who, who wrote that book. Um, credits the invention of the novel with with helping the idea of human rights um, become invented in the in in the middle of the 18th century. So 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 that's the power of story. That's so that's so fascinating because I was just um, I was just like hearing like Dan Carlin talk about on his podcast. He made the incredible claim that the the, the rise of the novel was one of the contributing factors to the change of sensibilities that stopped public executions well that's from this book i think he's probably read the same book as me because she's got a whole huge chapter on on exactly that that's it's, that is yeah. i mean it's i know it and i know it's only one of multiple factors but that's that is an incredible it's incredible and I, I say incredible in both senses i i can un, i can see how it would be but it's an amazing achieve, thing to yeah so so i've actually got the book in front of me and um it's so she 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 says that um uh, and i think it's a compelling argument that that before the novel there was no you know we, we were very very tribal before the enlightenment so so the idea of life was that you were born in your place and you stayed in your place and that was that and 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 and, and you, that's what you were expected so women were, had to stay in their place and subjects were subjects and if that meant being tortured then they would be tortured and slaves were slaves and servants were servants uh, but 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 then the novel came along and, and it was the first time people were able to kind of fully imagine being 
um, being other people. You know, be, you know so, so so one of the examples that she gives is a book uh, called Pamela that was um, uh, published in 1742, and I've just got it in front of me. So so so, so it was an epistolary novel. So it's, it's, it's letters, and and the and Pamela is a. Um, a, 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 a servant or a housekeeper, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a passage in which she's describing to her mum that her employer tried to um, seduce her, forced himself on her, and, and she says, I sobbed and cried most sadly. What a foolish hussy you are, said he. Have I done you any harm? Yes, sir, said I, the greatest harm in the world. I mean, so that's that that that's, that that could that could almost come out of Me Too era <laughs> fiction, you know. That's extraordinary, and this was a huge, huge bestseller. This book, you know, and so, so people who were the employer in real life were reading that and actually experiencing the emotional life of this poor woman Pamela, who who was being, uh, you know, was being sexually harassed by her employer. And this was in the 1760s. So 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 so, so you can quite understand the argument. It becomes a compelling argument when you read stuff like that. You think, God. That's quite extraordinary, and you can understand why that would help the idea of human rights. That everybody, no matter who they are and what their background is, has a right, a certain inviolable rights. You can you can see how that would have helped that idea come come about. That's absolutely. I think that's a fantastic place to end. Uh, will all the books that we've talked about today by the way um i will uh, everyone listening i'm going to put um links in the show notes and on my website uh, timclapert.co.uk so if you want to um get any of will's books including uh, the science of storytelling um you can just click on one of the links underneath or on my website and uh pick it up or go to your local books uh, bricks and mortar bookshop will thank you so much for um spending time with us today and uh and no, chatting. it's been a huge pleasure especially to talk about my ghost book it's been about 10 years since i spoke to him about that so thank you for re- thank you for going so back i I, I i just i you know like <laughs> like i say i'm um I, I, Derek Akora, uh, Deep Lore is my, um, my, I wouldn't say it's like my secret superpower, but it's certainly my pub quiz. Uh, uh, I, I'm waiting for the Derek Akora round to come out one day and I will, um, I will have, I will, I, I will dazzle people, uh, or, or probably appall, in fact, but, um, there you go. Yeah. Thank you so much, though. It's really, really no, fascinating. I've learned so much. Think as well with the ice house. Oh, cheers. Thank you very much. Me too. <laughs> and, um, everyone listening, thank you very much for listening. And I hope you have a fantastic week of writing. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Great talking to you. Thanks for your great questions. Yeah, let me know. I'll tweet it all out. Perfect. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tim. Tim. And you. Bye.